Another approach, just as a boy of suggestion, with the home Bible studies, don't want to interrupt anything anybody's doing here, as under the Lord, but um, there are certain formats that work for some folks and others that don't work as well, so a lot of times having a Bible study every week can be a very good thing, but sometimes that doesn't work for everybody, and so you can think about or pray about having one a month, or in a month having one, inviting a lot of folks you know that you know that you work with, or neighbors, or friends, or whoever, uh, to come with some pre-planning, and then you you don't also have to feel obligated if it's not something you want to do to have to have it every week. So that's a that's something to consider. I know that in years gone by. Various other ones, Lillian and other people that we know used to have the home Bible studies, a very effective tool to see people uh, built up in the faith and come to know the Lord. So there's a lot of guys like me that travel that we know who would be, um, not all of them as old as Malcolm, but um, who'd be uh, willing even with a little advance notice if you're coming into the, if we were coming into the area, and maybe even if we weren't, to make ourselves available to do something like that. So it's not even that you have to lead the Bible study. You just provide a place, do the legwork to get the folks invited and, you know, pray it through. And that's just an idea. Just throw it out there for what it's worth. Let's turn back to the book of Leviticus and just briefly turn to the first section again in the first chapters there. This morning we were looking at the five offerings that are at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. And I very firmly believe that each of these offerings in one way or another, uh, and in some of its aspects or in many of its aspects, prefigure the work of Jesus Christ that he came to do on the cross. And that one of the reasons why God has given us such detail in his word concerning these offerings is that, as I mentioned before, it would be, it is impossible to have one particular type of sacrifice that could adequately portray all of the benefits and all that Christ's work on the cross accomplished, and even all that is involved in his own person and in his life. And so the Lord gave a variety of offerings. The people who offered them at the time they offered wouldn't have known that. They did what they did in obedience to the Lord, and God taught them certain basic truths at a very elementary level. He taught them that approach to him was by means of a sacrifice. He taught them that they could not just wander into his presence in any way that they wanted to. He taught them that giving to the Lord was their first priority, the first priority of his house. It wasn't just about what they got out of it, but it was satisfying God's claims and God's demands. He taught them that he was a holy God that holiness was something he required, be holy as I am holy, and that holiness would be dictated by his standards, what he put his stamp of approval on, 
what he was not pleased with, and so on. All of these very basic and elementary level, entry level sort of things. He taught them that sin was a very costly thing. That when you came, it may not mean much to most of us to bring a bull or a goat or a sheep for that matter, but if you lived in that day when people survived off of their herds and flocks and all that they had, uh, it was a very costly thing. And I, I have no doubt in my mind that as that Israelite came and brought that animal and he thought of the cost of that animal and he thought of what he was about to do with that animal, oftentimes as we saw in the burnt offering, the entire animal being consumed by the flames of the fire on the altar, it at least seems, doesn't it, that he must have thought in his mind about approaching God, what was involved in the cost of it, what it cost him at that level. And with the sin offering and its trespass offering in particular, uh, that had to be valued and sin being a costly thing. I also believe, and this is just a little bit of me thinking through some of these things in scripture, that some of those Israelites at least had to wonder, was there nothing better? Was there not something that could really do the job, you know? And of course we know that that's the big theme of the book of Hebrews, isn't it? Whereas the book of Leviticus gives us these things by prefigurement and by means of the sacrificial system that God established, the method of worship and approach to God, the priesthood and the offerings and all of that, we come to the book of Hebrews and find a New Testament a book that shows us the fulfillment of these things. There was something better, and not better in the sense that you might think, better, you know, like you go to the car lot and the car dealer says, you can get this model, but here's a better model. This one doesn't have air conditioning, doesn't have power windows. This one has satellite radio. This one has, you know, all the bells and whistles. And so make your choice. There's this model, which you can have, or there's a better model. That's not the sense in which the book of Hebrew uses the concept of better. Better is in the sense that the other one has become null and void and that the other was ineffective in a sense, that it could never accomplish what ultimately needed to be accomplished. That's the very thought behind Hebrews chapter 10 in the first few verses. If the offerer could have had a sacrifice that he only offered one time that would cleanse his conscience from sin, why would he come year after year and time after time again and again to bring offerings and sacrifice and animals? If he could have found something that would have done the job once for all. And how beautifully the writer of the Hebrews then points us to Christ. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And as chapter 10, 18 tells us, where there's remission like that, there is no more offering for sin. And so Christ, in his once-for-all offering, uh, accomplished that better sacrifice. And so that's what we have in the beginning of the book of Leviticus. 
What I'd like to do tonight is turn to the end of the book of Leviticus, to the very last chapter, chapter 27. Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 1. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When a man shall make a singular vow, the persons shall be for the Lord by thy estimation. And thy estimation shall be of the male from twenty years old even unto sixty years old. Even the estimation shall be fifty shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. You notice in verse 8, but if he be poorer than thy estimation, then he shall present himself before the priest. The priest shall value him according to his ability that vowed shall the priest value him. And then dropping down to verse 28, Notwithstanding, no devoted thing that a man shall devote unto the Lord of all that he hath, both of man and beast, and of the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy unto the Lord. None devoted which shall be devoted of men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death, and so on. Now, it's interesting at least to begin to think about that this chapter, the last chapter of the book of Leviticus, is a, is a chapter that brings before us vows, voluntary dedication and vows. It's so interesting, as a matter of fact, and it stands almost so apart from much of the rest of Leviticus that the critics have come along and said, this is some addition that somebody added afterwards, blah, blah, and blah. When we begin to think about the structure of the book of Leviticus, and once again, I repeat an oft-repeated statement by me, that the word of God is very sophisticated. And by sophisticated, I don't mean that it's too complex for us to understand, because as we learned Friday night in our young people's meeting, if we're a believer in Christ, God has given us the equipment to be able to understand his words. It's not a matter of going to seminary. It's not a matter of going to Bible school. It's not a matter of sitting in some university. The natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. But we have the mind of Christ. God has given to us his Spirit, which is able to probe even the deep things of the Word of God, so that any believer who's saved has the right equipment to be able to understand even the deep things of God. That's the right equipment to understand the Word of God. And yes, sometimes it takes getting beyond the surface level things and digging and looking and comparing Scripture with Scripture and spiritual things with spiritual, but God has written His Word in such a way that it is a very sophisticated thing. It's not just thrown together. And so one thing that might pique your thinking is that oftentimes, many of you know that when we study a book of the Bible, we begin to look at the structure of the Bible. And we begin to see that what we find here is perhaps repeated over here, and in one way, either complementary, maybe perhaps a little bit by way of contrast, but it shows us that the thing fits together. 
I'll give you one example from another book of the Bible. You already know it, but that's the beauty of preaching, isn't it? To those who are saved, you're just reminding folks of stuff they already know. And, uh, and so I don't have to work with a blank slate. I know you already know it, but anyway, it's helpful to see it to me. When we come to the book of Judges, you know, there are seven major judges, major judges, because a lot of material is given to us about those particular judges, whereas the minor judges are sometimes just covered in a verse or two or three or four. Seven major judges. First major judge is a judge named Othniel. He was the son-in-law of Caleb, and he married a woman named Aksa. And it's a story of a man who loved a woman and how that woman, in a sense, and his love for that woman prompted him to do the right thing. And then you come to the last judge. The last major judge was Samson. It's also the story of a man's love for a woman. But how love for the wrong woman destroyed him and disabled him, in a sense, from being the type of deliverer that God wanted. You say, what a coincidence. At the beginning of the book, first judge, it's a story about a man and a woman and so on. And then you come to the last, and you realize it's not just happenstance. God is communicating to us a message. He's put his book together in a very sophisticated way. And so we come to the book of Leviticus. And if you remember from this morning, if you were with us, the very first offering that we come to is that which is called the burnt offering or the ascending offering. And you remember, if any man of his own voluntary will offer an offering... And so at the, at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, the very first offering had to do with that voluntary offering that was made. And now you come to the last chapter, and here we are again with voluntary offerings, vows that were made, non-obligatory. Now that's an interesting thing in and of itself, because the book of Leviticus is certainly a book that is at the very heart of the law of God, isn't it? It's a very uh, essential component of the Mosaic law, of the law that was given to Moses and communicated to the, the, to the nation of Israel. Part of their covenant relationship with God would depend upon them doing the obligatory things that most of the book of Leviticus puts before them. Very specific. Specific not only about the offerings in the beginning of the book, specific as to what they ate, the dietary laws that are part of the book of Leviticus. Specific about how they planted their fields. Specific about what type of clothing they wore. Specific about the land and the cleanliness of the land and their religious calendar year, the feasts and festivals that they were to keep. Everything was detailed for that people and it came communicated from the mind of God and it was not, you know, choose one from column A and one from column B. They had to do these things in order to maintain the type of relationship that they were in under the covenant that was made with them at Mount Sinai. This is how they would maintain their life and fellowship with God and so on. 
obligatory things, things that were commanded of them to do. And yet now, you come to the end of the book, and it's almost as if there is this appeal, if you will. When a man or anybody makes a vow, then there was to be an estimation, a value placed on it. They were to come and be evaluated according to their age and other factors as to what uh, the, the worth of the thing was when this vow was made. And the value of the thing was then given over for the use of the Lord. Obligatory things and non-obligatory things. Why would anybody come and voluntarily give of their substance or of their self to the things of the Lord. Well, even though the book of Leviticus is part of the law, even though the book is part and parcel of the law of, God, of Moses, it is still filled with gracious provisions. We think even at the outset, we saw that if we sort of reverse the order a little bit and think about the sacrifices there and the offerings of even the first five chapters, that the person who had been damaged by sin, where trespass had occurred and done damage, there was a sacrifice that was available to, to remedy that situation. And when a person had sinned, whether they were a ruler, whether they were more of the common folk, whether it was the congregation as a whole, there was a sacrifice that was available. God made provision so that the relationship with he and the people could be maintained and the relationship with one another could be maintained as well. The sinner needed atonement and there was atonement that was made. And he found himself unworthy, but in bringing the sacrifice, he looked not to his own worth, but to the value of the sacrifice. Boy, that's so important, isn't it, to remember. That the merit of a thing, or the good of a thing, really the good of our standing before God, in one sense, is dependent upon the value of the sacrifice. And if we only bring those things that are of our own hands, and our own doings, it has no more value or worth than what we are as fallen sinners. And if we bring an animal sacrifice, ultimately, that can't do it either. But the value of the sacrifice of Christ, there's where we as believers stand. And so there were all these gracious provisions that were made for the people by the Lord, even in this section which we refer to as part of the law. In a sense, this chapter stands as their response to everything that has preceded it. To how they perceived the Lord himself and to the fact that they as a people, yes, it was detailed, some of it tedious, some of it even now difficult to discern for us as we look back on it. But remember, this was a people who had been in bondage and in slavery in Egypt, and now, as a people, as a nation, God was going to dwell in their midst. And they were going to be able to approach at a certain level to, to, to the Almighty God Himself. 
who although he, yes, is holy, had come down to presence himself and dwell in the midst of that people. Have you ever heard a story like that? That God, in a sense, the transcendent Lord of heaven and the universe would localize himself to dwell right there in the middle of the camp of those Israelites. And the wonder of what that meant to them surely had to speak to their own hearts of the special place that people had in that day that God would come down and get so close to him them as a matter of fact they would see his presence manifest in the cloud they would see his presence at night manifest in the fire and there would be God who would speak to them from off the mercy seat and communicate his mind and his will to them from off the mercy seat. And they would have their festival times, as Leviticus says in chapter uh, 23 and so on. Their feast times when they would come and rejoice before the Lord. It wasn't just all law, was it, in that sense. It wasn't all just sternness and solemnity. They were to come before the Lord and rejoice in the Lord's presence as they feasted and enjoyed the very presence of God who'd come down to dwell in their midst. What a fantastic thing it must have been for that people who had been slaves to now be the people of God. And almost as if in response to that, at the end of the book, when all this has been laid out, now, by the way, if any of you come and you vow a vow and you voluntarily want to dedicate yourself or some of your land or your animals or, or whatever it is, it will be valued. The response to the benefits of their relationship with the Lord Someone, and I won't mention who, asked me this morning to write a verse in their Bible. And, and so I wrote to them my, what I call my life verse. Now, I don't remember where I heard that, but right after I was saved, I heard somebody say, my life verse is. Now, that's a tough one, isn't it? To crystallize it down, reduce down to one verse, you know. Um, but I thought that was a good thing. I thought, hey, I ought to have a life verse, you know. So you start kind of thinking through and searching and what would be my life verse? That's an interesting question. Do you have a life verse? Tell me if you do afterwards. Like, you got this one verse, and this verse of all the verses in Scripture is, you know, that's the, that's the one for me that just sort of defines, in a sense, uh, something about me, about my relationship with the Lord, what He's done for me, whatever. Maybe you don't have one. Maybe it's not a bad idea. Maybe you'd like to get one after this. Anyway, my life verse is Psalm 103 in verse 10. And it says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And you may know the rest of part of that psalm, as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him as far as east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgression from us. But it was that verse, and maybe it had to do with my experience of life, he hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And to me, that verse said and says, you know, well, it's like what I used to call some of the old 
chain gang sayings that most of you wouldn't be familiar with, but um, some of us are. And how I used to think, you know, whatever I've been sentenced for in life, if they knew everything I did, <laughs> I'd never see the light of day again. What if I was dealt with according to all of my iniquities? What if the Lord dealt with me after all my sins? And the reality is that the only reason he doesn't is because his son was dealt with not after his iniquity, he had none, but after mine. And his son bore the penalty for my iniquity and my sin that I right, rightfully deserved. Every one of them, all my sin as a whole, as a totality, as we've already heard the word mentioned several times, even this evening, the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction of God's wrath, God was expiated. God was satisfied. Christ did that. He hasn't dealt with me after my sins, nor rewarded me according to, his, to my iniquities. But anyway, that's not the verse I want to bring, but that's my life verse. But you know how this psalm begins. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And the very first one, who forgives all thine iniquities. What a benefit to start with, isn't it? I mean, it's, even if you don't get past that one, you can bless the Lord for that if you're saved, can't you? That he's forgiven all your iniquities. You're saved. What a great thing that is. What a thing to know today. Aaron reminded us, the world in which we live, a hurting world, people are hurting, people are confused, difficult, challenging times. And oh, how we need to communicate the reality. Look, what we have to offer, it's not about religion and going to church and all that stuff. It's about something that can change your life and give you the knowledge of eternity, lived with God and forgiveness of sins and peace and all the benefits of God's salvation. I tell you, I wish you, you, don't you just wish you could just lift the lid off their head and pour it in? We know we can't. But anyway, the benefits of God's salvation, it's sort of the Romans 12 aspect, isn't it? I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, he says. And the mercies of God, in my mind, in Romans, are everything that has preceded chapter 12. He's brought us up to that point, told us all that Christ has accomplished, what the gospel does for us, what the Lord does for us. And on that basis, the language of grace steps in and says, I beseech you, I plead with you. Not I command you, not I demand that you do, but I appeal to you on the basis of the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is your true priestly spiritual worship. What a challenge it is when we begin to think about it. 
You know, when we look at Leviticus chapter 27, it's amazing, isn't it, to think, as you get down towards the end of this chapter in verse 28, notwithstanding no devoted thing that a man shall devote unto the Lord of all that he hath, both of man and beast, field or possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy unto the Lord. And it's a beautiful thing when we see it in its right setting. But do you know how they abused this in the time of the Lord Jesus? Turn with me just for a moment. We'll look back here again in the scripture in the Old Testament. But turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. If you ever do have a chance to go to Israel, I almost asked this morning, could I see a show of hands? Could we put a trip together? I mean, that, wouldn't that be fantastic if a group of us could uh, all go to, yes, wouldn't that be great if we could all, I think we could do it. We ought to pray about that. We really should. I mean, it could be a really, it would just be incredible, wouldn't it? Um, I, and I'm telling you from the aspect of a person, I've said this before, um, you know, when, uh, Matter of fact, this is the first place we hit back in the U.S. of A. Remember that? We, we just got back from Israel, and Joe and Mary Eccles picked us up at Miami International Airport, and I went to Bob and Judy's house, and Michael went and bought me a card reader, and I went through the, you know, 1,500 pictures that I had, to try to put together a slide presentation. I don't know if you remember that? And I, it's the first place. I mean, I was still bubbling from the, you know, the spill over the trip. But um, anyway, I say it to say I was one who never was really that excited about going. My wife always wanted to go, Wanda, you know, but I'm like, eh, whatever, you know. I'm not going to be more spiritual because I touched that dirt over there or something. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I wish I could be. I'd get a whole wheelbarrow full of it wallow in it but um anyway you know I just it wasn't mm. but then I went I don't even know how to explain it it's almost the kind of thing that you you just can't it's like one young lady told me she says you know what it does is kind of puts the exclamation point on things for you you know and so you see things that just sort of come alive in everyday experience you go particularly when you get in around Jerusalem uh, the more orthodox parts of Israel and you see things like what are said here. Because you go into a, a, a restroom there, and there's the cups for washing, for the ceremonial washing. They've got them right there. And you got, they do it in a certain way so that you wash your hand, you wash the cup, you wash the other hand. I mean, I couldn't even keep up with the whole thing. But, um, you know, you see the very thing they were talking about here. The Lord says, um, the Pharisees came, and they said in verse 3, all the Jews, they, except they wash their hands often, <laughs> that's sort of a, you know, understatement, they eat not holding the tradition of the elders. Now, they came and said, your disciples eat bread with defiled, unwashed hands. I'm glad the word defiled is there because um, this isn't like you tell your kids, hey, go wash your hands before supper. Your hands are dirty. No, you got to do this in a certain way according to ceremony, to, to wash your hands. It was a religious, traditional ceremony in that sense of not only of the washing, of how they washed their hands. So many times this sand, so many times that, and the whole deal, right? 
And so, I, if I remember, even the little cups that were on the sink, they had two handles on it, so that if you, you wash the one, then you could wash the other, you know, with the other handle, with the hand that was already clean from the washing from the first time. So, they came and they said, and many other things, verse 4, which they have received to hold is the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and tablets or tables. And the Pharisees and scribes in verse 5 said, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, they were very scrupulous, weren't they, about keeping a lot of the things in the law. Matter of fact, they were so scrupulous about it that because, you know, you and I, we read the book of Leviticus. I confess sometimes we struggle to interpret exactly how all of it was to be, to be hashed out in daily life. Well, they did too, except what they did is they extrapolated on it and they came up with all these weird additional regulations, which was their way of saying, these are things we can keep. You see, and so they had their traditions of men. But listen, here was the Lord himself standing before them. They were more concerned about how many times they washed their left pinky than their relationship with the living God and his son that was standing right there before them. And he said, they honor me with their lips. Their heart is a million miles from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do. You full well reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Now think of it. Here's these people, and they're all bent out of shape over how and how many times in a specific way and all the things. Some of it was traced back to the law. Oh, we're very particular how we wash our hands. Your disciples don't do it in the right way and you're not doing it according to the tradition of the elders and therefore you're violating you know, the, the tradition. And the Lord says, listen to you hypocrites. You reject God's commandment. Oh. How could we do that? Have you not seen how we wash our hands? But while you're washing your hands, Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever curses their father and mother, let him die the death. Oh, they'd say, well, we, we would never curse our father and mother. But you say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is korban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And you suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which you have delivered. And many such like things do ye. You see, that's Leviticus 27, 28. Here they were. And a man came and said, whose mother or father was in need. And maybe it was financial help they needed or food or whatever it was. And in order to get out of that primary obligation of honoring and caring for his father and mother, he took that which would have met their need and he said, oh, but it's, it's Korban. It's Leviticus 27, 28. It's devoted to the Lord. And because I've now devoted that to the Lord, that can't be used for that. 
violating, no doubt in my mind many times, then the priest got his cut, which they often did in that day. And so they violated. They took the very thing that God said. That measure of voluntary devotion to the Lord in response to his grace. And they corrupted it. And they perverted it. And they made it into something vile. And in doing so, they taught for doctrine the commandments of men and laid aside the very commandment of God. And yet, you know, when we think back, turn with me, if you would, to uh, 1 Samuel and chapter 24. I think that's the right one. I get my first and seconds mixed up quite a bit. Oh, I'm sorry. I want 1 Samuel chapter 1. You know the story, and you know it well. It's in verse 24. It's the story of Hannah. What a remarkable woman. <laughs> what a measure of dedication and devotion. What a woman. I tell you, here was a woman, and her whole desire of her life was that she might have a child. That she might have a son. And God finally gives her the desire of her heart. And she takes that desire of her heart, the very thing that would, in a sense, fulfill that which she felt lacking in her life, and she gives him over to the Lord. In verse 24, when she had weaned him, she took him with her. She brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And I'll tell you, what a trust she had. You read what went on in that house of the Lord in the subsequent chapters. This woman had a faith in God to turn that young child over to the likes of Eli and his sons and the goings-on that were taking place there. She trusted God. And she dedicated that child. That was the very thing that she wanted. Gave him over to the Lord. A woman who put the Lord's interest above her own personal desire and dedicated, really all she had, she gave to the Lord. What a remarkable, remarkable woman. Oh, what it meant for that woman. It wasn't an obligatory thing with her, was it? Nobody came to her and said, okay, the Lord didn't come and say, oh, I'll give you a child, you give him back to me. <laughs> no. Her heart so moved at the Lord himself, that as she poured out her heart before him, and as he answered her prayer, she gave that child. And listen to her afterwards as she begins to exalt the Lord. To say in verse 8, verse 7 of chapter 2, 1 Samuel, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises up the poor out of the dust. He lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath set the world upon them. 
What a remarkable insight this woman had, undoubtedly led by the Spirit of God. Of course, I have written in the margin of my Bible by verse 8, that's me. <laughs> Took me out of the dunghill, a beggar out of the dunghill. And he set us among not only the princes of this world, but raised us up and seated us in heavenly places in Christ. You ever heard such a story? That God would take the likes of you and the likes of me and save us and seat us in the heavenly places with Christ to one day rule and reign and share in the very rule of his kingdom? Royalty one day, you and I, seated with him. We'll judge the world, the scripture says. We'll judge angels, the scripture says. You and me. It's almost more than your mind can take in, isn't it? And what is our response? Not an obligatory response. I'll tell you, it's the response of Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. And Paul had come to that logical conclusion. The love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all, all were dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. It's God's claim on our lives, but I'll tell you in that sense, it's a voluntary thing, isn't it? It is a response to the grace of God that moves us to want to dedicate ourselves unto the Lord and give ourselves unto him. Every now and then the Lord gives you a little encouragement. You know, you, you preach, you wonder how many times you've preached, how many messages you've given. You leave it with the Lord. That's, that's you know, his, the results and what happens after. Just every now and then he, he gives you a little something, you know, I believe. And it was about a year or two ago I got a phone call. I knew who it was immediately. I hadn't heard the voice in 25 years or more. But even then I knew who it was because she had an unmistakable voice, has an unmistakable voice. I have no idea how she found my phone number, but she says, Is this Larry Price? Do you know who this is? And I said, Nona? Is this Nona? Yes, this is Nona. Well, over the years, you know, Wanda and I, particularly in the early days, we had numerous interesting folks live with us from time to time in the early days, and Anyway, Nona and her husband, newly married, newly saved, long story, but they lived with us for a while, had their first baby, and anyway, it's, it's a whole other story, but, but anyway, we talked for a while, and she had a question. I couldn't believe after 25 plus years, she had a spiritual question, and because of the nature of the question, she knew that the place where she was going at that time probably wouldn't have the answer for it, but she knew that it was the kind of thing that I believed, you know, so she makes the connection and makes the call. And then, before she got off the phone, she says, I can still hear you saying when you were speaking, you are not your own, you're bought with a price. I have never forgotten that. And I thought, unbelievable, man. Incredibly, I mean, you know, I mean, all those years later, 25 plus years, and something I said from God's word impacted that woman's life. She'd never forgotten it. 
But what a truth it is. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are the Lord's. May God move upon us when we think of all he is to us and all he's done for us to voluntarily dedicate ourselves to him. Father, we thank you for your word, the power of it, the influence of it on our lives. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, and who he is and all he's accomplished, all he's doing for us now, all he will yet do in a coming day, the vastness of the work that he has accomplished and what it benefits us as we are on the receiving end. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for every speck of it that we can get hold of, Lord. May it move our hearts in deeper devotion to you, to your person first, to your work, to your will in our lives. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.